listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. As we uh, continue down the journey of the parables of Christ, please hear this reading from Luke chapter 13, 1 to 9. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you turn, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you turn, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of God. So good morning, everybody. So the parable of the barren fig tree. Uh, I'm not going to lie, this one is kind of a tough one, the parable that was read a few minutes ago. Um, if you haven't been here for a few weeks because like the summer and stuff, one, welcome back. Um, but we are in the midst of a teaching series going through the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And parables are like these short metaphorical stories that unpack all sorts of wisdom into what it looks like to actually follow Jesus and be a disciple in the world. And like some of the parables are different. Like there's some parables where the, the, the meaning is really obvious. Um, you read it and you're like, yep, I get exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Very clear. Um, the parable of the rich fool, which we looked at last week, is really one of those. It's a story of this really wealthy guy who has this massive harvest and so he doesn't think about the poor, he doesn't think about his community, he doesn't think about how can, I, how can I use this to bless others. He just tears down all of his barns, builds bigger ones, stores up all the stuff, kicks back and is like, ah, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. And then that night he dies. Pretty on-the-nose parable. Like the meaning there is, is pretty clear. Don't be selfish, don't be greedy, don't hoard. Then there's other parables that like they seem to make sense on the surface. You read it and you think you know what's going on. But then you like peel back the layers and look at the context and all of a sudden it comes to life in a whole new way. The Good Samaritan, which we looked at a few weeks ago, is really one of those. But then there's the parables that are just kind of confusing. Like you read it and it's like, all right, I don't really know what the story is about. I'm not sure what Jesus is getting at. I have no idea how this story relates to the stuff that comes before it. That's really the parable of the barren fig tree, at least for me. 
when I was like mapping out this series and planning out all the sermons, looking at all the parables in Luke, I almost skipped this one because I read it and I was like, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what Jesus is going for. I kept it because it talks about manure, um, which, is, <laughs> which is always a hit with this crowd. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I'm glad I kept it because like the more I looked into this story, there's actually some really good stuff here. Um, so the passage starts in the middle of a conversation, which like isn't very helpful at all. Uh, Jesus is teaching this really large crowd, and some people in the crowd ask him about this thing that happened, but we don't actually get their question, so we don't really know what they asked. And if you're just reading this, we also have no idea what this thing is, like what they're talking about. It's super confusing and not helpful. Um, Here's what I mean. If we look at the very first verse here, Luke 13, starting in verse 1, here's what we find. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Pause for a second. We all get on that? We all clear? We all tracking and know exactly what he's talking about? No, that makes no sense at all. Let's see if we can't get some context though and clarify things a bit. So if you go to the chapter before this, if you go back to Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching and he's talking about all kinds of stuff, Uh, but it kind of all has to do with judgment. He's warning that there's this judgment coming from God. It's very ominous. He talks about how we have to be at the ready. We have to read the signs of the times. He warns his listeners that he came to bring fire. It's like literal hellfire and brimstone teaching from Jesus right before this passage. So then we get to Luke 13. And the people listening ask him about this. All this talk about divine judgment leads some people in the crowd to ask Jesus about this group of Galileans. That's people from Galilee. That's like where Jesus is from, who were killed in the temple when they were offering sacrifices and their blood mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. And the person who killed them is Pontius Pilate. It's the same guy who in a few chapters is going to sentence Jesus to death. We all following along with that so far. Okay. Now, Pontius Pilate, he was the Roman governor of Judea. He was the guy in charge. Um, And we don't have, like, a historic record of the exact thing these people are asking about, but we have a lot of other accounts from this period, and Pontius Pilate was a pretty brutal guy. Um, He had a real knack for killing people around religious holidays. Jesus is crucified right after Passover. Um, He had a real knack for killing people in the act of worship. He would send troops into sacred spaces to slaughter people. Pretty nasty stuff. Pilate was a bad guy. So Jesus is talking about God's judgment, and these people ask him about these worshipers who were murdered by Pilate in the temple while they were offering sacrifices. Now, we don't have their exact question, but I imagine it was probably something like this. Jesus, you're talking about all this judgment stuff. Well, what about these people who were killed in the temple? Clearly, that's a sign of God's judgment, right? And Jesus' response is pretty clear. He shuts that idea down real quick. Verse 2, Jesus says, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. The assumption these folks seem to be making is that if something bad happens, 
If someone is suffering, if someone is killed, if there's some kind of failure or a tragic death, then that's evidence of God's judgment. For God to allow people to be killed in the act of worship in the temple, no less, clearly these worshipers must have been guilty of something. Otherwise, why would God ever let this happen in the first place? That's what they're assuming. This is kind of the equivalent of like when there's some sort of tragedy or natural disaster and some TV preacher goes on the news and like runs their mouth saying it's an act of divine judgment. Like, oh, that earthquake, that's God punishing all the sinners. Or these school shootings, well, that's because we took God out of schools. Jesus takes that way of thinking and he rejects it outright. He even points to this other tragedy, this Tower of Siloam, falling on some people and killing them. That's another event that we have, like, no context for, which isn't very helpful. But he points out that even tragic, seemingly random deaths like these are not evidence of God's judgment. When people suffer, when people die, when there are tragedies and injustices, when there's seemingly random acts of violence and death, we can't assume that any of that is God's judgment on the victims. Because, I mean, kind of, come on. That would be a brutal, tit-for-tat, downright evil view of God, at least as far as I can see it. This does leave us with a question, though. So, like, if random acts of violence and tragedy and death aren't signs of God's judgment, then what is? How do we discern God's will? If we can't just assume people who are suffering are under judgment, people who prosper, people who are in charge, people who are in power, that they somehow have God's blessing, then how do we tell how God feels about a situation? And Jesus answers that with a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. There's the manure. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So there's some symbolism at play here in this parable that like, would have been super obvious to the original listeners, but it kind of goes over our head. So let me unpack this a bit. Fig trees back then were a symbol of God's people. And this idea, this metaphor of a vineyard with fig trees in it, um, the idea in the ancient world is you would plant fig trees along the sides of a vineyard, and then the farmers would run like a rope from like one tree to the other, kind of stretching it across the vineyard, And those ropes are what they'd use to help the grapes grow. They'd kind of take the vines, drape them over the ropes. The grapevines grow up and produce more fruit. And then I guess also, like, the fig tree would return nutrients to the ground, apparently, like leaves and fruit. I don't really know much about trees and stuff like that, but this this is what I read. So the analogy is, though, that creation, God's people, the world, or sorry, creation, not God's people, is a vineyard world, people, that's a vineyard, and God's people are supposed to be the fig trees. We exist. Our reason for being, our, re- our call is to bless the vineyard. 
So if a fig tree is doing what it's supposed to do, if it's strong, if it's bearing fruit, then that's good. That's like God's people doing what we're supposed to be doing. But if there's no fruit, if the fig tree is dead and lifeless, well, then the farmer cuts the tree down. So how do you discern God's judgment? How do you know if God is pleased or displeased? This parable says, look at the fruit. If a person or a community or a church is bearing good fruit, then God is happy. If there's no fruit, that's how you know judgment is coming. Look for the fruit. Thing is, though, that's only like half the story, right? Because fruit itself is another metaphor. Like, what is this fruit? What kind of fruit is God looking for? To answer that, I'm going to invoke this idea called the law of first mention. Sounds very fancy and highfalutin, but it's actually really simple and really, really helpful when we read the Bible. So the law of first mention basically says when you're reading the Bible and you come across something you don't understand, there's some kind of metaphor, there's some sort of image that's not explained, go to the very first mention of that thing in that book of the Bible. And that will hopefully give you a clue as to what they're talking about. So when we find this metaphor bearing fruit in Luke 13, if we look for the very first mention of fruit in Luke's gospel, it's all the way back in Luke chapter 3, the preaching of John the Baptist. He was another hellfire and brimstone teacher, okay? Here's what John the Baptist has to say about fruit in Luke 3. It's going to be on the screen. John the Baptist said to the crowds that came up to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I think I might try that next time we do baptisms here. <laughs> I might just like start shouting random insults from the baptistry, which is behind that. That's why I'm pointing at. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. There's the fruit. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Even now... The axe is lying at the root of the trees. Do you see? Parable. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. The crowds asked John, what then should we do? They're asking him, what is this fruit? What is God after? What is God looking for? And here's what, God's, or here's what John says. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors can be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Soldiers also asked, And what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. So what does good fruit look like? If you have two coats, give one to somebody who has none. If you have food, share it with someone who's hungry. Don't cheat people. Don't extort people. Don't exploit those who have less than you. Be satisfied with what you have and use it to bless others. In a word, this kind of fruit that the Gospel of Luke is getting at is justice. If you want to know if God is happy, take a look around and ask, 
is there justice? Are the hungry fed? Are the poor cared for? That's the fruit God is after. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus, they didn't, like, invent this. They're actually picking up on a much older idea uh, that comes from the Old Testament prophets. And I'm going to give you one more passage today. It's one of my favorites. Micah 6, 6 through 8 really exemplifies this idea. It's on the screen. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? question is the same one. What is God after? What is God looking for? What fruit does God want? Micah 6, verse 8. God has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. That's the fruit God is after. If you want to know where God stands on something, who has God's favor and who doesn't, look for the fruit of justice. When there's no justice, the farmer is coming to cut down the tree. How much, like, spiritual anxiety do we live with that could be resolved by this story? How often do we, like, struggle guessing, wondering, am I on God's side? Does God have it out for me? Am I doing the right thing? This suffering, this failure that I'm going through right now, is this God judging me? Maybe God's turned against me. We make the same mistake people in Jesus' day made. We see someone with a lot of power, someone who life is going well for them, and we assume that means God blesses them. And then if someone's suffering or if we're suffering, we assume that that's a sign of judgment. But that is not how it works. If you want to know if God is pleased with you, don't go by the whims of how your life happens to be going today or tomorrow. Look at the fruit of your life. Is my life bearing the fruit of justice and kindness and mercy? Have I situated myself in God's kingdom? Have I taken up the mission of Jesus, of dying to myself daily and living for others? Or is it still all about me? Am I still playing by the same rules, the same powers of the kingdoms of this world? Which kingdom are we standing in? One more layer of this parable that's important to know. Last thing before we're done. This is where the story goes even deeper. I mentioned earlier the fig tree is like a symbol of God's people. At the time of Jesus, fig trees were especially associated with the religious establishment. So like clergy, religious experts, the structures, the religious institutions, what we would like today call the capital C church. That was also the fig tree. So another question this parable should make us ask is, what kind of fruit is the church broadly bearing today? Is the church known as a beacon of hope and justice? 
When people like outside the church, when non-Christians think about Christians and our religious institutions, our, our leaders, our, the stuff we do, does that conjure up like positive images of like people who are at the front lines of the struggle for justice? Or does it conjure up a different image? See, at the time of Jesus, there were basically two camps in the religious establishment. Rome was in charge. Rome was the reigning empire. So you had some religious leaders who were allied with Rome and some who were against Rome. The people who were allied with Rome, they figured, like, if you can't beat them, join them. We might as well partner up with Rome. We don't like them. We don't approve of them. We don't like their morality. We don't like the violent, terrible stuff they do, all the weird sex stuff the Romans are into. We're not about that, but hey, they're in power. They have control. Clearly, that means God has blessed them. And then the other side, the people who are against Rome, they believe that Roman rule was a punishment. There's something fundamentally wrong with God's people. We're guilty of some grievous sin. That's why God would let the Romans sweep in and take over. That's why we're living under the authority of Caesar, because we know that struggle and failure and defeat are a sign of God's judgment. Jesus takes both those camps and he shuts them down. And he warns that judgment is coming. About 40 years after the time of Jesus, the year 70 AD, the Romans swept back through Jerusalem, but this time they leveled it. The people were slaughtered. The temple was destroyed. All those religious leaders, the ones who allied with Rome or the ones who were against it, they all had to flee for their lives. I don't know how long the church broadly in America has. Like, we might have a nationwide revival in the next generation, that's possible. Or we could be like 40 years away from absolute catastrophe. I don't know. But I do know that we won't get anywhere by repeating the same mistakes of the past by allying ourselves with this political party, that, that political leader, playing all those games of the world. But I do believe that we are a fig tree and that we have been planted in a vineyard. And our job is to bless that vineyard by bearing fruit. And that fruit looks like justice. Let's pray. God, help us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, both in our lives as individuals and as a church, Lord. Help us to follow you. Help us to bear fruit worthy of repentance and to be a blessing to those around us. It's in your name and for your glory we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. 
You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.